Monday, it's a new episode of All Rise, the legal drama where one judge is shaking up the system. When I take the bench, I'm taking a vow to fight for justice. One case at a time. Your Honor, we're going to trial. Simone Misik is Judge Lola Carmichael. Up on that bench. Everything is different. A new episode of All Rise. Freedom is at stake. It's important. Followed by a new episode of Bull, Monday at 9, 8 central on CBS. Hackers are after your business data. I can help. I am Vi, the virtual intelligence assistant at Virtual Armor. Virtual Armor, partnered with Juniper Networks, provides cybersecurity services and end-to-end solutions to keep what's yours, yours. Defend yourself with managed firewall and managed SIM essential core services that are economical and efficient. Virtual Armor goes beyond just initial alerting to provide a thorough report on threats, vulnerabilities, and results. Let me help protect you. Contact me at JustAskVi. That's vi.com. And here we go. My opponent is against oil, guns, and God. I am the Democratic Party right now. 47 years, you've done nothing. Everything Americans value hangs in the balance. We have an obligation under the Constitution to use every arrow in our quiver. This is the most important election in the history of our country. I believe that. This is Devious Motives with Brett Winterbull. Welcome to episode zero of the Devious Motives podcast. I'm Brett Winterbull. Normally you hear me behind the microphone here at WBT in Charlotte, North Carolina, News Talk 1110-993-WBT. This is a brand new project that we've decided to launch, and it's going to cover the stuff that you really need to know, but you might not even know that you need to know it. What do I mean by that? Well, as the title describes, Devious Motives. Devious has got a bad reputation for what it is. So many people just think of it as evil motives. It's the sort of thing that uh, people want to come in and they want to kill you. They want to take you out. They want to wipe you out. Well, uh, devious, if you go for the definitions, you know, wandering, roundabout, errant, out of the way, remote, deviating, or perhaps not straightforward and cunning. That's the sort of POV we're talking about here on the uh, Devious Motives podcast. So you have the most hard-fought political election season unfolding before our very eyes. And in this episode zero of the uh, Devious Motives podcast, I want to kind of plumb the depths and take a dive and take a look at all the different sort of elements that are out there moving at the same time. Now, if you're listening to this for the very first time, understand this. I don't have a dog in the fight. The the, the storylines, I think, are compelling. The implications are important. And yet the biggest thing that's going to be front of mind is what's going to happen come Election Day to your freedom, your liberty, your tax dollars, your opportunity, the safety on your streets, all those sorts of things that are that are getting pushed. And, and every politician that comes onto a debate stage, every politician that stands behind a microphone, every news reporter, every talking head pundit, everybody that's really out there trying to affect your life and your livelihood has got a motive, a core thing that drives them in a way that, well, has existed since the dawn of humanity. I mean, you look at the definition of a motive. What is a motive? It's a reason for doing something especially one that could be hidden or not obvious. That uh, ties in beautifully with the word devious because you've got cunning and hidden motives. And when you watch the commercials that are running during this election cycle, in these next 30 days, you are going to be spun, twisted, turned, churned, and left doubting the very reality of your own existence. I'm not kidding about that. 
this is nothing new in terms of you know, dirty politicking and playing hardball. But where we are now is the constant drumbeat of impact on your life. And the way you can wake up in the middle of the night and be thinking about a presidential election, a Senate election, uh, the future of your family, especially against the backdrop of COVID, especially against the backdrop of economic uncertainty. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, riotous behavior in violation of uh, the common norms of law and order. So sit back, strap in, get ready, because we're going to take you on a journey. And this is going to be a daily experience that's going to take place over the course of the next 30 days. I'm calling what we're watching the Dirty 30, the final 30 days of this presidential election that, last time I checked, seems to have started sometime around uh, 2017, January 21st, 2017. As you have watched, all these different elements kind of come together. It's, It's amazing to think back all the ebbs and flows that we have traveled together in this country and in this world. Because let's be honest, the the center point of the power structure in the world is Washington, D.C. And the center point of that that media infrastructure runs all the way from the the high-end universities in Boston down to New York City, over to Washington, D.C., and then out to the West Coast, where our culture is constantly being uh, pushed out into the rest of the world. We we do it like nobody else. And sitting here in Charlotte, I have gotten a great opportunity to have a clear-eyed view of what it is that's going on. Here, let me give you a little bit of a, a of a test run here, okay? What was the biggest story of the last week? No doubt you're going to say the debate. And you're right. Until before the debate, when the biggest story was Donald Trump paid no taxes. $750? What is this all about? What is happening with this? Is he just another one of these scoff laws and tax cheats doing his own thing? Well, that was one narrative. And then came the debate on a Tuesday night in which we watched a very aggressive approach by the president of the United States defending himself against the onslaught of not just Joe Biden's allegations, but of course of, of Chris Wallace's allegations as well. And suddenly nobody remembered anything about tax payments. In the same way, you've seen something incredible take place just in the last number of, of months, and that is the, the fade, the hard fade out of the investigation into Donald Trump's collusion with Russia. Once upon a time, it drove news ratings. It drove the political cycle. Now, it's fallen way, way back into the background of the American mind. This thing that once drove debates, arguments, and fights in our country has been all but forgotten except for a hearing room there at the Senate with Jim Comey and Lindsey Graham. Do you agree with Mr. Horowitz that the dossier was central and essential to the Carter Page FISA warrant application being approved? I agree that it was important. I can't tell you whether it was essential, and by that I mean that it wouldn't have been granted without the steel information. How is it possible that the system gathers so much exculpatory information? This internet rumor, according to the CIA, that the actual interview of the subsource disavows the reliability of the document, that the actual subsource was a suspected Russian spy. How could all that happen and not get up to you, the director of the FBI, of one of the most important investigations in the history of the FBI? How is that possible? 
I can only speculate because it didn't. And as I said, the investigation overall was incredibly important. The piece you're focused on is obviously important, but a much smaller slice. Well, it's very important to Mr. Page. It should be important to every American. Senator Graham's correct. It should be important to every American. It ought to matter to every American because Carter Page can be you. Carter Page can be your cousin, your brother-in-law who got accused of something they didn't do. You have to believe the accusers. That's the default position here in our country today. And yet, when you go back to clean it up later, well, who are we kidding? Nobody ever goes back to clean it up later. And this is not about necessarily a presidential election in terms of this worry. Back before Princess Diana lost her life in a tragic car accident in Paris back in the late 1990s, uh, Princess Diana had made a, a central focus of a lot of her life, this this idea that she would go out and, and try to get rid of all the landmines that had been left in battle zones around the world. You know, you have these horrible places, especially in, in Asia uh, and, and in sub-Saharan Africa, where, where armies and insurgencies had fought it out for all these decades. And what's left behind is, is the potential to kill innocent people today that are non-combatants. So she wanted to go and, and work with the international uh, groups that go out there and, and deactivate landmines. You have them all over Cambodia and in parts of, of Vietnam, Laos, and again, as I said, in sub-Saharan Africa. And it's terrible. It kills innocent people. Well, think of these assertions that are then just forgotten about and they move on uh, as, as landmines that can detonate later on. Oftentimes you'll see these stories moving out of the European press that will talk about uh, unexploded ordnance found uh, under a German school, and they'll find out it was some British bomb that had been dropped in 1943 over Berlin. And it just got uh, anchored into the ground. They built a German school, and then suddenly they realize, holy cow, there's a big bomb underneath the school. we got to do something about it. There is absolutely, and, and I'm telling you this, folks, there is absolutely no impetus to get out there and clean up the record, to straighten up the record. So you come in and you say, well, we're going to assert that the president's on the take for Vladimir Putin and the Russians and all that sort of stuff. And then you say to yourself, well, wait, wait a minute. What ended up happening with that? Was Carter Page a spy uh, for the Russians? Was he helping the CIA against the Russians? Was he a patriot? Was he a villain? George Papadopoulos, all these names that have now been lost to, 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 the, to the messy, messy nature of the Mueller investigation, the probe, the FBI, etc. And yet we never get to the truth. This is why I wanted to launch this particular project, devious motives, because there's a reason somebody made the assertion about Trump and the Russians. There, there's a reason people made assertions about Trump and Ukraine. There's a reason that people made us uh, uh, assertions about Al Franken and and being a, a, a serial predator, driving him from the Senate seat. How's that for a little uh, bipartisanship? Everybody's got a motivation to do this. And they're never going to tell you what it is up front. You're just going to see it appear in BuzzFeed and then get echoed across across the talkosphere. Brett Kavanaugh, you're just going to hear this. Well, he was, of course, everybody knew he was running a, a drunken gang rape ring. What? What what was the final determination? I get that he's on the Supreme Court, but what was the the final determination, the, the final outcome? Well, let me take you to the most recent debate that took place between President Trump and Vice President Biden. And let's get a listen to the back and forth that took place involving Hunter Biden, Ukraine, Hunter Biden's drug addiction, and the fact that well, when given the opportunity to actually discuss this, Chris Wallace jumps in and shuts it down pronto tanto. 
Hunter. Really? And I resent. Are you talking about Lykel. Hunter? Are you talking about I'm Hunter? I'm talking about my son, Bo Biden. You're talking about. I don't know. Him. I don't know Bo. I know Hunter. Yeah, Hunter you know got Bo. thrown. Hunter got thrown out of the military. He was thrown out, dishonorably discharged. That's not true. For it wasn't cocaine use. And he didn't have a job until you became vice president. Once you None became of that vice president, he made a fortune in Ukraine, in China, in Moscow, that is simply and various not other places. True. He made my a son, fortune. Gentlemen, my son. And he didn't have a job. My son, like a lot of people, like a lot of people we know at home, had a drug problem. He's overtaken it. He's, he's, he's fixed it. He's worked on it. And I'm proud of him. But why I'm was he given of my tens son. of millions All right, of dollars? But he wasn't given right, tens of millions of dollars. That is totally, that's President totally, Trump, that's President totally discredited. You've already, we've already been through, totally we've already, discredited. We've, both, we've already been through this. I think the American people would rather hear about more substantial so subjects. Well, you know, yes. as the moderator, sir, I'm going to make a, know, a judgment call here. I know, but three and a half million okay, dollars right. from the Let's mayor of Moscow, that is not true. That report is totally discredited. Mitt Romney on that committee said it wasn't worth taxpayers' Gen- money, that report. It was written for political it, reasons. You know, Vice President Biden turning to now Senator Mitt Romney, once upon a time a political rival in, in 2012, and saying, well, even Mitt Romney says these assertions about Ukraine are untrue. Yet we have seen the videotape over and over again. We have seen the admission against interest by uh, former Vice President Biden speaking uh, uh, to, uh, to, to a group of uh, you know, high-end foreign policy experts bragging about getting the Ukrainian prosecutor looking into Burisma uh, fired and threatening him with the, the removal of a billion dollars coming out of uh, out of the Ukraine's budget. Remember this little clip? Um, I remember going over convincing our team, our <coughs> others, to convincing us that we should be providing for loan guarantees. And I went over, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev, and, uh, and I was going, supposed to announce that there was another billion-dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they had. They were walking out to press conference. Said, "No, nah, I said I'm not going to. We're not going to give you the billion dollars." They said, "You have no authority. You're not the president." The president said, "I said call him." <laughs> I said, "I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars." I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours? I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> Got fired. And they put in place someone who was solid. Worth noting that there's never been a hearing or an investigation into, into that piece of policy executed by then-Vice President Biden. That's an admission that that was all taking place during, of course, uh, his vice presidency in uh, in the second term of, of the Obama administration. Why is this relevant to you? Because because everybody's got an angle. Everybody's got a position they want you to believe. And then after the assertion is made, after the twist and the turn occurs, nobody ever goes back to engage in the fact finding required to get to the truth. See, this is not about defending or attacking a given politician. It's about focusing in on the motives. Why would you want to throw President Trump out of office? Why would you want to move on from an investigation into what a vice president did while he was serving and his son may have had financial interests? Those are questions the press do not want to answer, but those are questions that we're going to dive into. Why? Because it matters. It matters to you, and it matters to me. I'm Brett Woodard.
listening to Devious Motives. You're listening to Devious Motives. What do you want to call him? Give me a name. Give me a white name. Supremacist what, what, what like me to white supremacists and right proud boys. White supremacists and right proud boys. Stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left because this is not a right his wing own, problem. This is, this is a left wing. This is a left wing problem. White supremacist. Antifa is an idea, not an organization. Oh, you got it. Not militia. Ah, the Proud Boys. One of the uh, one of the groups that I never would have thought would have come to exist, not just based on their name, but but based on on, on all the sort of stuff that's attached to them. Uh, if if I may editorialize, and I am Brett Witterbull, and this is the Devious Motives podcast, so I'm going to uh, opine on this. I look at the people that live in our country, and and sometimes I just shake my head. Uh, people on the left, people on the right, the all right, whatever they want to call themselves. And oftentimes I'm just I'm just flummoxed. I'm shocked. And I, and I think about all the opportunity you have in this country to do all kinds of amazing things, start businesses, start charities, start foundations, work in concert with each other to try to make this a better place. And instead, we're going to get a bunch of, of goofballs together to go put on uh, uh, football helmets and grab baseball bats and brass knuckles. And we're just going to go fight in the streets of the United States because that's what we do. I really believe sincerely that, that the folks uh, that are out there uh, beating each other up in the streets of the United States sort of have a weird envy for, for Europe and, and more specifically for uh, the soccer hooligans that you typically see uh, in, in the UK. You used to really see them in the 1990s and, and even now. But the Proud Boys has become an issue. The alt-right has become an issue. White supremacy has become an issue uh, during this presidential election. And it was writ large just on that debate stage a couple of uh, uh, nights back there in Cleveland as the, the president and the vice president, former vice president Joe Biden, went at it over uh, who, who's worse, who's bad, what's going on, and how, how are we going to stop all this? Fact of the matter is, when you look at uh, the issues of, of racial strife and division in this country, uh, these are very deep wounds that are, are not going to be uh, addressed as easily as, as one would like to see them addressed. But at the same time, the idea that the, the president of the United States is some fire-breathing uh, Ku Klux Klan leader uh, type maniac is, is just, it's just not the right narrative. And somebody is pushing this for some great advantage. There is a reason why uh, historically you, you haven't seen uh, movements like Antifa be effective on the streets of America. It's because the, the American people are an incredibly resilient people. For whatever racial divide uh, exists in this nation, it, it tends to exist on the macro, not the micro. Or you could argue it tends to exist on the micro, not the macro. Meaning this, you get up and you go to work every single day, you do your Zoom meetings, you, you go to your uh, supermarkets, you, you go to your uh, uh, gathering places, uh, church if you're allowed, uh, your community uh, groups, and I, I can guarantee you, you are not in the midst of race fights in supermarkets or in church parking lots or any of these sorts of things. It's not to say that racism doesn't exist, it's not to say that that it's not a blight on, on American uh, society, but we have to understand something here. The amplification that comes from the pundits, the media, the press, what have you, uh, is very, very powerful. So you have to ask yourself this question of what benefit is it to have people at each other's throats defined along the lines of race, creed, identity? How does that advantage a person pushing that narrative? The only way it advantages a, per a person pushing that narrative 
is if you consider that it's about the aggregation of power, getting your power, the power you seek, the power you desire. Go all the way back. It's a popular name that gets used a lot. Many people are unfamiliar with it. Adolf Hitler. You go all the way back to, to, to pre-war Germany. As Adolf Hitler's aggregating his power, he is scapegoating and targeting groups of people, saying that they are not worthy of the German dream. They are not worthy of the German soil. They are not worthy of, of, of all these sorts of things. And what you end up getting is a bunch of aggrieved people together. The grievance culture. The grievance culture does best when people are in isolation and are feeling desperate. Let me say this again, because this is wildly important to remember. The grievance culture, the people who are who are sitting back, steaming and stewing and becoming angrier and angrier and angrier and looking for outlets and reasons to blame others. Ladies and gentlemen, that that is the perfect concoction the perfect recipe to take root in isolation you're sitting at your house your business has been shut down you're sitting at your home you may be losing your home to foreclosure your your family may be tearing apart addiction illness those things are setting in and where do people turn for edification in 2020 where do they go where do they look Typically, the internet, social media, outlets online where they can find individuals whom they can identify with. Back in the 1990s, there was a tremendous book written by a sociologist at uh, Harvard University called Bowling Alone. And it foretold of this terrible time that we would eventually live in. And, and what it said in, in, that, in that book was this social isolation is going to be the ruin of our nation. We are a country who for the better part of a century, and maybe a little longer, enjoyed uh, the leisure culture, the working culture, the interactivity. Churches boomed in our country. Uh, synagogues, churches, places of worship, temples, they boomed in our country. The, the, the sort of uh, uh, gathering together civic fabric that had existed for so long in our nation uh, was, a, was a backbone of what made this country great. The Lions Club, the Elks, the Mason's Lodge. You go down that list and you see these, these organizations that helped you elevate Knights of Columbus, uh, sons of Pythias, uh, what have you. These groups, these organizations fostered community. People would turn out for the Memorial Day Parade. People would turn out for the Labor Day Parade. People would turn out for the St. Patrick's Day Parade. Sometimes they were loaded. But the fact is, these were all parts of the broader community uh, fabric that we were all woven into. Yes, there was a, a racial strife, of course. There were segregated places. There were segregated neighborhoods. There were segregated schools. And those are terrible. But the people of our country were able to work together. I have contended for a long time. And, and I'm just going to divert here for a quick second. You're listening to the Devious Motives podcast. But the end of the draft, the end of the military draft, and I'm not saying we should bring it back, but the end of the draft represented 
uh, a sort of a, a moving away from each other. When you think about today, how few relative to our population are serving in the United States military. Think about your childhood or your or your or your parents' childhood, how there were there were military vets, war vets in every community and every neighborhood. I can I can think back to two paternal uh, to, to a paternal grandfather and a maternal grandfather who, who both fought in World War II. And I grew up hearing their stories of their service. That was an important thing. People were integrated because of the way the culture worked. Now people are tended towards isolation. It lets the darkest motives, the darkest ideas take root in their minds, and they begin to look at people and say, whom can we hold to account for this? And it, it, it's true for, for Proud Boys. It, it's, it's true for, for the Klan. It's true for Nazis, whatever groups. And it's also true for Antifa. And it's also true for the radicals on the far left uh, who have adopted uh, the imagery and the iconography and the language of BLM uh, to go out and to fundamentally transform this country, not at the ballot box, but through popular uh, popular movements, resistance movements. Remember, as I talked to you in that last uh, segment of this program, the the idea of this Russian investigation, it was a byproduct of the so-called, quote, resistance. People not loyal to the Constitution or to the United States of America, but people who had embedded themselves with an ideology thinking, well, Hillary Clinton should have been the president. And, and I'm sorry if that comes off as an ugly and awful uh, sort of a, of, of a viewpoint in your mind. I don't believe it is. I don't believe it is. But let me go back and, and, and set the record, uh, not, not set the record straight, but give you a little backstory here. You, you do know that in the wake of Charlottesville, in the wake of Charlottesville, President Trump did call out white supremacists and Nazis. That, that's impossible, Brad. I, I can't believe that for, for even a moment. How can you contend that he actually called out white supremacists and Nazis? Because I have the sound from August the 15th, 2017 at Trump Tower. When he talked about that very thing, he spoke about it in the context of statues and memorials and monuments. But he did specifically condemn white supremacists and white nationalists as a part of that appearance at Trump Tower. You're changing history, you're changing culture, and you had people, and I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis and the white nationalists, because they should be condemned totally. But you had many people in that group other than neo-Nazis and white nationalists, okay? And the press has treated them absolutely unfairly. Now, why do I bring that up? Why do I bring an ugly chapter in American recent political history up to you in this audience? It's, it's for an important reason, because I want to talk about the identity politics that we do see playing out in our country and in our world. You know that uh, Mike Pompeo is the secretary of state and Mike Pompeo was scheduled to, to head on over to meet with the uh, Pope, with Pope Francis over at the Vatican. And Mike Pompeo, the secretary of state, of the United States of America was denied, let me repeat, was denied the opportunity to have an audience with Pope Francis. I, I started this podcast with the mission of talking about what I believe to be the devious motives out there, the cunning motives, the motives that that drive decisions in this way. And it's easy to probably sit back and say, if you're a, a defender of Pope Francis, Hey, uh, look, uh, that's just the way it's going to be. The president is uh, is is bad on on race. The pe president has got a bad record on 
on on on being mean to people and and refugees and migrants and immigrants and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, but you know what the president's been tough on? Middle East peace. The the greatest the greatest uh catastrophe, human catastrophe of the last 15 years would certainly be the displacement of peoples there in the Middle East because of the Syrian civil war brought about by of course don't forget uh, what drove that the so-called Arab Spring in 2010 and 2011 that was midwifed by the prior administration. That's an that's an inarguable fact. Hillary Clinton and and the foreign policy establishment that she she headed deposed Hosni Mubarak in Egypt, an American ally at the time, and put in the Muslim Brotherhood to take over. You ended up with a civil war in Syria so profound, so big, so so tragic. That you had not just Christians, but you had Christians and Yazidis, you had Muslims displaced, you had people losing their very lives because of the side of the fight that they were on in a civil war that would not be won because America would not provide the right support and and would not do the right sort of moral support, military support, what have you. It was just a a toxic mess that was created in that region. And, And yet Pope Francis, who's been in the papacy since 2014, was unbelievably silent about this. You know what else he's unbelievably silent about? China. The Pope doesn't speak out on the issues of the Uyghurs. The Pope doesn't speak out on the issues of repression. And in fact, has cut sweetheart deals with the Chinese Communist Party just in these uh, in these last years to ensure that that the Catholic Church can operate in China. But it's with the the imprimatur of the Chinese Communist Party deciding what can be taught and what can't. Here was the debate over China between former Vice President Biden and President Trump just days ago. They said it would take a miracle to bring back manufacturing. I brought back 700,000 jobs. They brought back nothing. They gave up on manufacturing. Part of my standard fare. I'm the guy that brought back the automobile industry. We brought back, I was asked to bring back Chrysler and General Motors. We brought them back right here in the state of Ohio and Michigan. He blew it. They're gone. He blew it. And in fact, they're going. Ohio had the best year it's ever had last year. Michigan had the best year they've ever had. That is not true. Many car companies came in from Germany, from Japan, went to Michigan, went to Ohio. They're not having And they didn't come in with you. Mr. Vice President, go ahead. And so you take a look at what he's actually done. He's done very little. His trade deals are the same way. He talks about these great trade deals. You know, he talks about the art of the deal. China's made perfected the art of the steel. We have a higher deficit with China now than we did before. We have the highest defi- trade deficit China with ate Mexico. Your lunch, right, ate China, China, China ate your lunch, Joe. China, race, and of course, Russia. They're all going to be huge parts of this election. And we're going to track it on the Dirty 30. Here on Devious Motives. You're listening to Devious Motives.